Welcome to the second episode of the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the content director at Word on Fire. And once again, I'm joined by Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, welcome to the show. Brandon, always great to be with you. We uh, had our first test episode not too long ago. We covered Pope Francis and looked at the four key figures in his uh, speech to Congress. Today, we're going to be looking at something a little more fundamental. I'd like to talk about something that Catholic theologians call the kerygma, the kernel, the gospel. In uh, Pope Francis's encyclical, Evangelium Gaudium, he talks about the need to recover the kerygma. He said, we've missed this a lot. We focus a lot on the secondary issues. We really need to get back to, to the basic core of the gospel. So, Bishop Barron, I figure who better to proclaim the core of the gospel than you, and especially in a world that so often misses what Christianity is all about, uh, I think this is the right time to talk about it. So let's start. What is the kerygma, or I guess to ask another way, what is the gospel? How would you sum that up? You know, it's a good question. I remember many years ago, I was in a uh, evangelical Catholic dialogue, and that was the question that the evangelicals posed to our side in an almost provocative way as though to say, well, they really knew clearly what the gospel is, you know. And it would be some version for uh, uh, those folks of justification by grace through faith. So to the Catholics, what's the gospel, you know? Well, I would say this. I say two basic things. Euangelion, right, the glad tidings, the good news, is fundamentally that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That's what they uh, carried around the world. That was the basic message they had. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Uh, the kerygma in those earliest, earliest uh, sermons, people like Peter and Paul, is you killed them, God raised them. He didn't stay dead. That's the kerygma, the resurrection, I would say. The resurrection implies now many things. One thing it implies is there's a new king, this new lord. So the old code was Kaiser Curios, Caesar's the lord. He's the most powerful figure. The resurrection proves that God's love is more powerful than anything Caesar can throw at us. He's more powerful than anything in the world. And therefore, Jesus is Lord. So another form of the kerygma, Jesus Curios for Paul. Jesus the Lord. But he knows that because Jesus was raised from the dead. So I would cluster those two things together. Then I make another implication. Because Jesus rose from the dead... The early Christians concluded, he is who he says he was. So Jesus spoke and acted in the person of God. Not simply as one prophet among many. They called him prophet. He accepted that title, but he clearly wasn't just one more Jeremiah. He was a priestly figure, but not just one more priest. He spoke and acted in the very person of God. And we can show that in a number of ways in all four of the Gospels. The resurrection ratified that claim. And therefore, Jesus is Lord, not just in the sense of, you know, he's the true king, but he's Adonai, right? So Kyrios would have translated for Greek speakers, Adonai in Hebrew, the Lord. Well, who's Adonai but God, Yahweh? You couldn't say the sacred name, Yahweh, so you said the Lord, Adonai. Jesus Christ is Lord means he's God. Now, I'll take one more step in terms of the gospel. If you had asked the church fathers, what's the gospel? They wouldn't have said justification by grace through faith. They would have said, it seems to me, Deus fit homo, ut homo fieret Deus. God became man that man might become God. All the church fathers say that in some way. 
doesn't mean that we will turn into God. It means we become sharers in the divine nature. The good news is Jesus is risen from the dead. Therefore, he's the Lord. Therefore, he is who he says he was. He's God. And therefore, we have a chance to participate in the very being of God. So I'm kind of just pulling it out by a number of steps. But that's the kerygma. That's the gospel from a Catholic perspective. We may become participants in the divine life because God became one of us. And that's proven and ratified by the resurrection. That's how I'd sum it up. I, I come from a Protestant background, and I know among many Protestants, there's more of a formulaic approach to presenting the gospel. You know, so uh, here's a, a four-step approach that when you're walking to somebody on the street, a total stranger, you can share the gospel with them. You can walk them down either the Roman road or the paths yeah. of the gospel. Um, but I always felt that that was a bit simplistic. It wouldn't really land. And I think you would probably agree. One of the big problems is that it pulls this uh, profound gospel message out of the greater story, the great tradition. Mm-hmm. You've always said that we Catholics need to sort of reintegrate the gospel into the great story of Jesus or the great story of Israel. In other words, to fit the story of Jesus into the greater story of Israel. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's so important because the resurrection is not just this kind of one-off metaphysical wonder. Wow, look at that. That's never happened before. It's the climax to a great story. It's the climax to a long narrative of God's dealing with the people Israel. And see, what he's doing is he's shaping a people after his mind and heart. St. Irenaeus saw this back in the second century, that God is preparing, as it were, for the incarnation. He's suiting a people to receive him. So the, the uh, kind of tutoring of Israel in the law, through the prophets, through the liturgy, was shaping them so as to receive, ultimately, the gift of God himself. And so Jesus is faithful Yahweh meeting faithful Israel. We would say he's both fully human and fully divine. He's the meeting place of God's faithful love and a human uh, response. And so in that way, Jesus is the climax of the story of Israel. He's the true Israelite. He's the fulfillment of covenant, because the whole point of the covenant was to bring God and Israel together. He's the fulfillment of the temple, whose whole purpose was to unite Israel and God in prayer. He's the fulfillment of the prophets, who were there to speak God's truth to the people. So he's the culmination of Israel. Now, what's the resurrection? Paul said it exactly right in terms of of Israel. It's the yes to all the promises God made to Israel. It's summed up in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So I would say the incarnation, God becoming one of us, and then that incarnation coming to its fullest flowering in the dying and rising of Jesus. That's the good news now, if you want, within, as you're suggesting correctly, the broader context of Israel. So you can't take it out of that context and say it adequately. It's, the, it's like telling someone, here's the climax of a story, but you never heard the first part of the story. You never heard chapters one through seven. All you got was chapter eight. Um, tell the whole story. And the climax of it is in shorthand, what we might call the gospel, the good news. But the good news is we have a God who has um, joined himself to us. He did it through a long preparation, we call the story of Israel. And now it's come to fulfillment in Jesus, which means finally we can become participants in God's own life. Now, there's the life of the church. 
what's the church, but now the ongoing, as the fathers always said, the extension of the incarnation across space and time is the church. So the, the coming together of divinity and humanity, we now find it in the sacraments. We find it in the liturgy. We find it in the saints. We find it in the great works of art of the, of the tradition. So that's the fuller picture, right, of uh, gospel. See, what's wonderful is you can say it very quickly. When, in fact, when my Protestant friends asked me, I used the patristic line. I said, the gospel is Deus fit homo and homo fiera Deus. <laughs> and I translated that. Say, huh? In English, yeah. <laughs> but then, so you can say it in a very quick formulaic way, but then pull out the implications of it. It's the work of a lifetime. I think many people, especially in America, surrounded as we are by evangelicalism, have a very personalistic understanding of salvation and of the yeah. gospel that, you know, we send and then Jesus did this and now I'm saved. So yeah. me and Jesus are on good terms now. Um, you hinted at a, a little bit earlier, but how does the church fit into this larger charisma, this yeah. larger story of the gospel? It, intimately and in many ways. I stand with Henri de Lubac, you know, his great book called uh, Le Catholicisme, he wrote back in the 40s, Catholicism, makes the argument that all the doctrines of the church have a social dimension, that there's no such thing as a purely individualized or privatized doctrine, including and especially, he would say, the doctrine of salvation. So it's simply wrong-headed to, to think about how will I be saved? How will my soul be saved? Better to say, well, how are we going to be saved? How are we as a people uh, on the way to salvation? That's a better question. Um, and then furthermore, though, the church is the means, the privileged means, by which God applies the effects of the incarnation. Now, God can do what God wants. I mean, the Thomas Aquinas says that. God's not limited by the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church. Nevertheless, it's the privileged uh, means chosen by, by Christ himself. And uh, that's the church's role up and down the centuries, is to um, bring to bear to us now the power of the incarnation. Just as, you know, Cardinal George always put it this way, you can't know me apart from my body. So right now, you know me because you can see me, you can see my body, and and people listening to us, whether hearing vibrations are coming from my throat and through my mouth, it's my body that makes me present to you. Well, in the same way, Christ was known through his body in the first century, walking around Palestine, but now he's known through his mystical body, the church. And you can't know him, really, apart from that body. So apart from the sacraments, from the papacy, from uh, Episcopal leadership, from the saints, et cetera, et cetera, that's how you know him. And even, even some of us, well, like, I came to know him through preaching. Yeah, that's the church. That's the church. It's the voice, literally the voice of the church proclaiming him. Anyone that knows Jesus knows him through the church in some way. Um, we just make that very explicit in our, in our ecclesiology. Let's get back to Pope Francis, and I mentioned in his encyclical Evangelium Gaudium, he spent several paragraphs on this kerygma, emphasizing that we need to recover it and make it our first proclamation. In fact, he, he kind of uses language that's eerily similar to your own when he says, we shouldn't lead with the moral, we need to lead with the kerygma. What's he saying there, and why is it right? Yeah, read uh, any of the New Testament. Now, you could distill morality out of the New Testament, and we should. There are moral implications, clearly. But I would defy anyone to read uh, Paul to the Romans or read the Gospel of Matthew or read the book of Revelation, any book in the New Testament, 
and say the primary message I'm getting here is uh, morality. The primary message you're getting is the love of God expressed in Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, um, salvation offered in the Trinitarian life. I say that's the message you get. Now, that has moral implications, to be sure. So I'm not soft-peddling morality for a second. But the Bible doesn't lead with morality. It leads with the kerygma, with the basic good news. So that's what I think Pope Francis is seeing. We should imitate what the Bible itself does. Or go back to Jesus himself. Um, Jesus with the woman at the well is a very good example. He gets to morality, but in such a, such a winsome way, you know, where she's totally ready to hear what he's saying. But he begins with this beautiful exchange about uh, thirst, you know, and the offering of water bubbling up to eternal life. That's what I want to give you. I want to give you eternal life. Give me this water always, and I may never come back to this well again. I mean, so she's drawn into the beauty of what he's offering. And then, then, quite rightly, he says, well, we got some problems to deal with here first, you know. And then he looks into her, her sexual life, her married life, and all that. That's the right rhythm, you know. Whenever you're proclaiming or preaching, if you begin with, with morality, you tend to turn people off, especially in our society. Get there, but begin with the kerygma, I would say. And begin with beauty, as I often argue. Pope Francis talks about the via pulchritudinis, right? The way of beauty. That's the right way to do it, I think. I think a lot of people listening to this, you know, they're going to be ordinary people in their regular jobs and their families, and they're probably thinking, well, this is wonderful, great theology. I understand it and appreciate it, but how, what are some simple practical examples of how I can share the good news with a friend who's drifted away from the church, someone who's has no conception of what Catholics believe? Like if you had, two minutes with a person, what would you say? Well, it, it depends on the situation, I think. Um, you know, where you are. Has someone opened his heart in some way to you? Has he or she shared, you know, a concern, a question, a struggle? Um, then I think you you go with that. You, you enter through that door that the person's opened for you. Um, sometimes people will just say, well, tell me, what is Catholicism? What is Christianity all about? You know, and I would talk about about Jesus. I, would, I bring forward this infinitely fascinating figure of Jesus Christ. Um, and I think I would talk about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Um, that's what Paul did. That's how Paul you know, announced the gospel. Um, but I think it depends on, on where the person is, what he or she is offering to you. Um, I think beginning with their, their own questions is good. You know, if they, they're bringing a question forward, good. Start with that. Um, there are a thousand different doors, you know, I think, into the Christian thing. Um, and a lot of times people will kick open a door and you can go in that one. Um, but I do think, I, I'm with, you know, Billy Graham and company. I think there should be, on the part of Catholics, the ability to say it clearly, distinctly, uh, succinctly. Here's what I believe. Here's the gospel, you know. Um, I think, too, that witnessing to it, you know, the famous Paul VI line, that what people listen to today are not so much teachers but witnesses, and if they listen to teachers, it's only in the measures they're also witnesses. Um, there's a lot to that, is that you witness to what Christ has meant in your own life, and you share that. You share that, how he's changed your life. Um, I think those are all good 
evangelical methods. Who would you say would be some of the models of proclaimers of the gospel, both contemporary and in the past, who really understood how to share the kerygma, the basic gospel? Yeah, well, I, I go back to Billy Graham again, whom I admire very much, and uh, watch Billy Graham's sermons. A lot of them are on YouTube, and they always have the same basic form, which is, um, I would say, Augustinian. Namely, you've tried this, 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 and that, and you've not been happy, have you? You know, you've tried uh, you, wealth you thought would make you happy, it didn't. Uh, you thought pursuing pleasure in different ways would make you happy. It didn't, did it? And of course, everyone knows the answer is, no, it didn't. Well, I have the thing that will make you happy. Uh, that's effective. That's a very effective way to do it. Um, you know, John Paul II, I think, was the other truly great evangelizer in the last uh, century. You know, he did it, John Paul's an interesting character because super intellectual. Uh, his background was in moral theology. And John Paul's sermons would not be like Billy Graham's. They, they wouldn't have had that kind of immediate emotional appeal. But heck, he appealed like mad to young people, didn't he? And part of it, I think, was this this call to heroism. You know, John Paul had that sense of young people like to be called to a difficult, heroic ideal, and he held that out to them. Um, so that was his his method. Also, just his vivid personal presence. You know, he evangelized by showing up you know, as the Pope. So uh, those two people were extremely effective uh, evangelizers. But you know, maybe who surpassed both of them? C.S. Lewis. You look back over the past hundred years, name a more effective evangelizer than C.S. Lewis. Um, it's funny, when, in, when I was coming of age, in, like in my teens and 20s, no one read Lewis. He was seen as this kind of fuddy-duddy old-timer. Um, oh yeah, C.S. Lewis, you know, Narnia. I, I mean, he wasn't taking that seriously. But then led by evangelicals, there was this huge revival. And I think people have seen, I remember reading Mere Christianity many, many years ago, and like, yeah, hmm, Mere Christianity, yeah, it's fine. But then, maybe 20 years later, I reread it, and it had this explosive impact on me. Um, he's a very effective evangelizer. Smart, it's a very intellectual approach, but not in a sort of oppressively academic way. Um, and named the Christian basics in a very compelling way. So Billy Graham, John Paul II, C.S. Lewis, I think are three of the most effective evangelizers. That's a good crowd. I, I'm thinking of not only C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity, but his Narnian yeah. Chronicles, which a lot of people have, have served for a lot of people as a gateway mm-hmm. to this first encounter with Jesus. Lewis uh, wrote this letter to a, a mom who was worried that uh, her young son was so infatuated with Aslan, the the Christ figure lion, that he didn't really care about Jesus. He just really liked Aslan. And and Lewis told her, well, don't worry, because what he likes about Aslan, he'll like about Christ. And so they'll they'll build the bridge that way. You and your work have talked often about the use of the imagination of beauty as sort of gateways into the gospel. Talk a bit about that. How can we use these as ways to proclaim the kerygma rather than just a straight intellectual approach? Yeah, as I've said many times, in our postmodern period, I think it's a more winsome approach because people are allergic to uh, objective claims to truth and goodness. But the beautiful... <clears throat> the beautiful has a more uh, winsome, less threatening quality. Just read this story. Let me tell you the story. Pick up that book. Watch that film. Um, as I've said, you know, go to the Sistine Chapel or go to Saint Chapelle. Um, I think that's less threatening for people today. 
And it, as Lewis would say, you know, it evangelizes the imagination. That's what he and Tolkien and company were all doing very cleverly. And in a way that, you know, talk about sowing seeds that maybe take root and, and blossom many, many years later. Uh, that even now, I mean, people are, are coming to the gospel because of, of Tolkien and Lewis. They knew what they were doing. I mean, evangelize the imagination. They were also operating in a world, they're both at, at Oxford and then Lewis later at Cambridge, um, where the beginnings of our skeptical secular culture were there. And people looking at Christianity as, you know, outmoded and old mythologies. And I think they very cleverly did a sort of end run around the immediate intellectual uh, objections, and they told stories. Lewis, of course, famously would take on uh, atheists, and he would do it in an intellectual way. But I think they both intuited there's probably need for this end around, this more um, literary approach, artistic approach. So I think that's that's very wise, you know. And um, my basic approach to apologetics and uh, evangelization is an ad hoc approach. You do what works, and don't get caught in a system that that uh, constricts you too much. Now, the only way to do it is this. I think you've got to be flexible. Like a good quarterback, you're reading the defense, and you've got to call an audible once in a while. And maybe your strong suit is uh, you know, apologetics through the mind and all that. But maybe the defense has shifted in a way that you've got to call an audible and uh, do something different. So I think we've got to be flexible and have a lot of tools in the, um, in the toolbox to shift metaphors now. Uh, and not be, not be too restricted by our own prejudices i want to get back to something you mentioned earlier you said that today the augustinian approach works really well what would you contrast that with and why the augustinian approach what do you mean by that i just mean augustine's great line from the very first page of the confessions that lord you've made us for yourself and therefore our heart is restless till it rests in thee there's there's no better statement of christian anthropology there's no more uh, succinct summation of it and he names so much in those, those few words. Lord, you've made us for yourself. And see, that, that's the whole Christian anthropology, that here I am in my humanity, and I've got different abilities and skills and, and capacities, but I recognize in me something uh, divine. And what I mean is there's a longing for God. There's a hunger that only God can fill. You know, the cliche is there's a God-shaped hole in me, you know. But see, that's what Augustine meant. Is it, That's the, the clue that we've been made by God, that we bear his image and likeness, another way to put it. But the Augustinian version is, it's more negative if you want. It's to say, I have a hunger in me that's so great that nothing but you, Lord, could fill it. So getting in touch with that, Lord, you've made us for yourself. Helping people see that. And see, the way in, you can use cosmological arguments, which I think are very good. I, I love them. But see, for a lot of people, they're too abstract or distant. But you, the Augustinian approach is, no, no, look right at, in you. Look in your own heart. And what do you find but a, a God orientation? And it might even be your, your anger at God or your frustration with God or whatever. But whatever it is, it's a connection to God because it's a, an infinite longing. Get in touch with that. Follow that desire all the way down. I've told people, and you'll find what I mean when I say God. You know, find that desire in you uh, and follow it all the way down. And that's what I'm talking about. Uh, God is the objective correlate to the subjective longing. That's a way to put it abstractly. 
But that's the Augustinian approach. And it's exactly what Billy Graham used in his evangelical preaching. Um, and I think it's a very existential approach. It's very close to the heart. So, Lord, you've made for yourself. Therefore, our heart is restless till it rests in thee. Beautiful naming of a dynamic, isn't it? it and as Lewis said so correctly, it's at the best moments in life that I'm most aware of this, not the worst moments. I am aware of it there, but more so at the best moments. I've experienced the greatest satisfaction in my career or my relationships or my success or whatever. And yet I feel I want more than that. That's not enough. That's not what I really want. That, in fact, is a sacrament of what I really want. See, there's Lewis with his longing, his, his joy, you know, with this, this aching. And the Germans have that lovely word, Sehnsucht, this longing of the heart. But it's... It's a beautiful thing. It's not that you're frustrated with the world. You recognize the world as sacramental. Is It's great, but it's not enough. It's a greatness that is indicative of a further greatness. That's evangelical country. When you move into that country, you're getting close to the, to the gospel. So we've looked at several avenues to proclaim the kerygma through the imagination, through reason, uh, through beauty. Uh, what are some uh, places that you'd recommend listeners turn if they uh, want to clarify even more their conception of what the gospel is and how they share it? Well, you know, a guy that's helped me a lot is N.T. Wright, uh, the great uh, Anglican biblical scholar. Uh, he's very good, I think, at naming the kerygma as the proclamation of the kingship of Jesus, that Christ is king. It, it might be his version of the kerygma, you know, and he ties it very closely to the resurrection, of course. He also sees it very much as the climax of the story of Israel, the story of God becoming king. So he's someone that I find very helpful. Um, I'd mentioned Lewis, too, I think is really good at naming the heart of the, of the matter. Um, you know, because I go back to all the classic people, uh, Aquinas uh, the church fathers are especially good I think on this stuff because they were they were pastors you know they weren't academic theologians they were pastors first and foremost preachers read the sermons of Chrysostom you know you'll get a lot of, of the gospel there uh, read Augustine's great sermons they're very redolent of the gospel so all those people I would say uh, but for contemporary read N.T. Wright Thanks so much for tuning in to the second episode of the Word on Fire show. We hope you enjoyed it. We have a new episode every single week. So to make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or your favorite podcast app or go to wordonfireshow.com. We also want to encourage you to leave reviews of the podcast on iTunes and other podcasting services because that helps more people find out about the show. Finally, here's one more thing we're going to try out here. Uh, we'd like to receive questions from you posed to Bishop Barron that he can answer right here on the show. We don't have a call-in show, but if you go to askbishopbarron.com, you can record your own question either on a phone or straight through your computer. And then we're going to select some of the questions to be answered right here on the Word on Fire show. So be sure to visit askbishopbarron.com, record your question, and send it in. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in episode three of the Word on Fire show. Thank you.